0: Here we go. You're listening to Law and Gospel on this Monday, July the 18th, in the year of our Lord, 2021. No, it's 2022. I'm Tom Baker, and on Mondays, we like to look at one of the lessons for the following Sunday, which is the seventh Sunday after Pentecost, July the 24th, 2022. Readings from Genesis 18, Colossians 2, and Luke 11. We're going to be taking a look today at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, because it really has a great law and gospel theme. Therefore, verse 6, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, we were talking last week about the fact that it's fun to learn a new language. Well, the language that KFUO really wants you to learn is the language of the Bible. Now you're saying, what, we have to learn the Greek and the Hebrew? No, no, no. Take any English translation, and how do you understand what that verse is saying? You receive it and understand it by allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. Scripture. So, in the church at Colossae, Paul is writing to those who have already received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. What is he talking about? How can you translate that Bible statement into a language we are able to perceive and understand? It's not talking about justification because it says you've already received Christ Jesus. So we're talking about those who are already saved. It's talking about sanctification. So walk in him. What does that mean? It means to follow the words of God as he explains it throughout scripture as to how we are to behave, how we are to walk in him. It's very important to realize that there are two paths, P-A-T-H-S. One is the narrow path that Jesus puts you on. The other is the broad path that most people are on. Now, to walk in Jesus means to walk according to the narrow path, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Now, what does that mean? To be established in the faith means to believe the promises of the gospel. That's what you're established in. Because God has declared you righteous, either because you read the scripture or because of your baptism, and therefore, as you have been taught the word of God, which can come through youth confirmation or adult confirmation, we abound in thanksgiving. Now, this is really a critical phrase. What does abound in thanksgiving refer to? It refers to our perception of what Christ has done for us, and we abound in thanksgiving in giving him all the credit for our salvation. And the way we give him all the credit is by doing the good works that he says are important to him. Now, how do you find out what those good works are? Well, you don't listen to people. Verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, that reminds us of Satan in the Garden of Eden. He took Adam and Eve captive by his philosophy, love of wisdom. That's what the word philosophy really means in the Greek. Phileo, to love, Sophia, wisdom. Why do we love our own wisdom? Because we think it's smarter than God's wisdom. In fact, you love your own wisdom every time you sin. Yes, because you're putting what you think is important and moral in front of what God has already said in the Bible is important, moral. Therefore, you follow human tradition. Traditionally, humans realize they get ahead by what they do. They, well, pass grades, pass tests, and they go up to the next grade in school. They do real good work, and therefore, they get a promotion, more pay. They also work at marrying those that they would like to be married to, and that's on the basis of their works. So, human tradition just assumes that you're saved by your works. That is so far from the truth that the entire work of salvation is accomplished by God. That's what it means to be saved according to Christ. Now, why is that important? Verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, what's rule and authority? How do we translate that into language we can understand? Well, God does have rules like the Ten Commandments, but they are not given so that you can obey them in order to be saved. No. They are given so that after you are saved, you know how to behave in God's sight. These are rules of authority. Because in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells. He's both God and man. And when you come to faith, Verse 10 says, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Therefore, to love Jesus would result in obeying him, not because you want something, but because you have received something, eternal salvation. And that's what verse 11 talks about. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So this is different than the circumcision that Abraham brought to bear because of God's word. This is a circumcision where you put off the body of the flesh By the circumcision of Christ. Now, what event is Paul talking about? Well, Scripture interprets Scripture. Verse 12: Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. You see, Jesus won for you many benefits in his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And those benefits were wonderfully given to you through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus was raised from the dead by the powerful working of God, not by something you and I do. But then how does God transfer the benefits of Christ over to us? He transfers them through the means of grace. The means of grace simply means the means by which God transfers to you the benefits of what Christ has won for you. And the primary means of grace for that is holy baptism. Because what happens in baptism? In baptism, God... Grant you a promise. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. More than that, as Peter says in the Pentecost sermon, you receive the two gifts, number one, of the forgiveness of sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that gift of the Holy Spirit brings with it faith. Faith just doesn't believe there is a God. No, proper faith believes in the triune God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Proper faith believes God created the world. He created us. In fact, in Proverbs, we saw recently that any profit that we make from our work is really a gift from God. You cannot be profitable unless God gives you that profit. Now, how many times have we attempted to do things to become profitable and they all fail? But then we get into a circumstance where there is no failure. That's God. Working in you. He's working in you the same way He worked in Jesus Christ by raising Him from the dead. Now, what does that mean for you personally? Listen to verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, what does that mean? We have to translate that also into language that can be understood. Dead and trespasses means that we were born with original sin, inherited from Adam and Eve. Man, by nature, is sinful. Now, It's part of philosophy and human tradition that people are basically good. How anybody can come to that conclusion by listening to the news, reading the newspaper, or seeing what's happening in the world around you is beyond me. No. Men, women, and children are actually corrupt in their hearts and they need a transformation. And that transformation is from being dead in trespasses. God made you alive together with him. Now, what does that mean? Because when you are born with original sin, people still jump to the conclusion that you are alive. What does it mean to be made alive together with him? What does God do to give you a life that you don't have when you are dead in your trespasses? Well, obviously, something has to happen to your trespasses. Those are your sins. And verse 13 says it. Because God makes us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, what does that mean? How are your trespasses forgiven? Are they forgiven because now you're beginning to do good works in the life of sanctification, and you therefore cancel your sins, somehow they no longer are there? No. The Christian also continues to be a sinner because even though he has had his sins forgiven, they still corrupt his old Adam. So what does God do to forgive your trespasses? Probably verse 14 is the most important verse in this entire chapter. Here's how it reads. He's forgiven you your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Do you understand that? Can you translate that to help people make sense of that? No, it just does seem insensible. It doesn't make sense. Because God doesn't remove your debt because of your good works. No. No. He cancels your debt. It would be like you rob a bank, you're taken to trial, you confess that you robbed the bank, and the judge looks at you and says, well, in your case, we're going to cancel the debt you owe to society. We're not going to put you in jail. You're free to leave the court. Now, this is after you confessed your crime. This is after you clearly are seen to be guilty. This is the essence of forgiveness, that God just cancels your debt. In other words, you are not held accountable for your sin. Did you do the sin? Absolutely. But when God forgives you, he doesn't hold you accountable for your sin. It's kind of like you buy a house and you have a mortgage. And boy, it's tough to pay the mortgage. So what the mortgage people do is they send you a letter and say, in your situation, we have decided to cancel your debt you don't owe us anything the house is yours see that doesn't make any sense and that's why Christianity is so hard to come to grips with if you're an unbeliever because that's the message of the cross apart from any good works you do The debt that you owe God, which is what? Eternal damnation is canceled. You're not going to have to pay for your legal demands. But does Paul describe how that takes place? He does at the end of verse 14. Let me read the whole verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Don't tell me that the cross of Jesus Christ is unimportant. It is the method by which God cancels your debt. He cancels it because it's paid for by Jesus on the cross. He becomes the sacrifice in your place. He is your Savior. Oftentimes, the Bible refers to Jesus as your Redeemer, What does that word redeemer mean? Well, it was used in the days of Jesus to indicate how a slave was given his freedom. Someone paid a price, and it usually was money, and the slave was made free. And sometimes that price was not paid by the slave. No, it was paid by the owner, and he freed the slave. He canceled the debt. He canceled the servitude. This is what has happened to you as a believer. For when you receive faith, that means you trust the promises of Jesus Christ. And God declares you to be righteous in his sight, not because you stop from sinning, but because Jesus has stopped the record of debt against you with its legal demands by nailing himself to the cross. What did he do when he did that? Jesus himself says, His primary purpose in coming to earth was to defeat the work of the devil. And this is what verse 15 of our text says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, we need to translate that so we can understand it. It means that the rulers and authorities he disarmed, the devil and his wicked crew, the temptations that we receive, they are disarmed. Even were we to fall into temptation and sin, Jesus still forgives that sin. He cancels the debt of your sin. There is no other religion except Christianity in the whole world that has such a way of salvation. Every other religion in the world, it works on the basis of your works as to whether or not you're good enough to get to heaven. No, in Christianity, it works on the basis of the works of Christ in his life here on earth, in his state of humiliation, and finally, in his crucifixion, where he disarmed the evil ones. You see, what does it mean to disarm? It means they don't have a weapon anymore. Well, what's the weapon? that the devil and his evil crew uses against humans. Remember, it's based on philosophy, empty deceit, and human tradition. The weapon, weapon is his accusation that you are not good enough to get to heaven. Even some Christians, as they near their time of death, worry about that, because they realize the many sins they have done while they are alive here on earth and can imagine how heaven can be their reward. But it's their reward because Jesus won the reward for them. He paid for your sins. He died so that you will never really die, and he is raised from the dead, so that you also are raised from the dead on that last day of judgment. It will be a wonderful occasion when you are taken into heaven to live with Jesus face to face forever and ever with your new body and your new spirit.